I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. Uh, thank you for being here today. Uh, I think this is a wonderful way to spend a Sunday morning. It's my favorite way to spend a Sunday morning. So I'm glad to see that many of you are here today. I uh, am actually dressed in, in new clothes. I, I know maybe some of you haven't noticed because I am always dressed in white when I give a talk. But this is indeed a new shirt and, and new pants. My mother gave them to me over the Christmas holiday. And uh, the pants are actually um, scrubs that like doctors, surgeons, nurses wear. And uh, my mom didn't know that when, they, when she got them for me. Um, I, I went home with my presents. I take out the bag, take the pants out, and I look, and I realize, these are scrubs. And uh, I didn't know how they would work. I, I knew they fit. But then I tried them out today for meditation, and wow, they're really comfy, guys. And this whole time, I mean, people have been spending money on, like, these yoga pants, and they've been getting these meditation clothes that cost $90, $100, $300, and right beneath our noses this whole time, scrubs. Who knew? And it kind of makes sense. The Buddha often compared himself to a physician. So the fact that nurses, doctors, surgeons have been wearing the perfect meditation clothes this entire time, go figure. So today's uh, topic is maybe uh, pan-Buddhist in nature, in that uh, it's going to revolve around uh, a quote from a Zen Buddhist in Japan, but I can't help but interpret that in my own way as now a, a Theravada Buddhist. Now, the, the quote in question, when I first found it, I was very young and just beginning to dabble into Zen Buddhism. I found this quote, and I'll tell you who, who, uh, who said it, but I found this quote in a, in a book called The Little Zen Companion. It was back when Borders and Barnes and Noble were really, really powerful. You'd go to these stores and right as you're, as you're checking out, they have all these little books and little boxes of knickknacks to take with you if you wanted to purchase them. They'd have the little Zen sand you know, to, with a little rake and all that. But they also had these little books you could pick up, really cheap. And one of them was The Little Zen Companion, which was really just filled with any quote from anyone that was probably public domain and also had any semblance of Zen meaning. So it did have quite a few quotes from various patriarchs, various uh, Zen poets, but also people like, I think, Voltaire and... Einstein and just anyone that said anything that sounded a little bit like Zen. One of the quotes always stuck out to me very, very strongly. And it, it was so profound and so strong, or at least so um, puzzling even, that it was even one of the quotes they, they felt like putting on the back of the book. And uh, it's, a, it's a quote by Basho. Basho was a, a famous... Japanese poet. He's very well known for his haiku poetry, but he also had all these long poems that he would do. He thought those ones were actually better, but he's known for his haikus, go figure. And uh, and this quote uh, is often phrased as, 
Do not seek to follow in the footsteps of the wise, but seek what they sought. And I found this, the book was published, this uh, book of quotes was published in 1994. I probably got a hold of it a few years later, so probably maybe 96, 97, something like that. To put that into context, I was probably about like 11 or so, so I was a weird kid. Uh, and I, I was puzzled by, by this quote. I, I really didn't know what it meant, but I, I knew that it just resonated with me somehow. Like, what is so interesting uh, about this quote? And I think early on, I, I had this sense that maybe, I don't know, it's, it's about just kind of striking your own path, being a trailblazer. And for me, I, I think I used it as maybe a, a, a carte blanche to just be really eclectic in my spirituality because I wasn't supposed to just follow anyone's footsteps. I was supposed to do my own thing and find my own way and I got to seek what they sought. I don't know what they sought, but I'm going to seek it too. And so I was tr experimenting with all these different religions because I really wanted to f seek what they sought. Like, what are they seeking? And I, I did this for a long time, very, very eclectic. And uh, my view on on the quote has changed now because I think that there's a lot of freedom that can be found within a path and there's a difference between following a path and following the footsteps of someone else. But in preparing for this talk and also just thinking about this quote again, now after years of, of maturity and meditation and Buddhism, but also now, uh, you know, experienced as a philosopher, it's what I have my degree in and everything. I, I wanted to do some research because context is everything you know so when someone says something and it's just this little quote people can have all sorts of uh, beliefs about what it means what it says and people often stop there they 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 come to their own conclusion and say that's that's what that guy meant and so i i typed in this quote and tried to see what the source of it was like where did this come from and as it turns out so many people have used this quote by now with so many interpretations that it is very difficult to find where it came from because you find um, self-help gurus using this quote. You find executives of businesses talking about their own iconoclasm and they're, they're talking about how what this quote means to them. And you find people who write things as if they are basho and like this is what he meant by it and all, all these various things. And I had to dig deeper and deeper and deeper until I finally found this book that there were some excerpts of it online. And sure enough, this quote comes from a dialogue that Basho had, one of, had with one of his students. The student in question was this uh, young uh, man from a samurai family. And the, uh, the, this young man was a very, very skilled painter, but he also loved poetry. In fact, when Basho asked him, well, you know, why do you love, like, what, what do you, like, why do you love painting? Oh, because I love poetry. Well, why do you love poetry? Because I love painting. And so Basho saw something beautiful about how he saw the two as saying, saying something similar. And uh, in this passage that's now known as the, uh, the rustic gate, it's, uh, it's a time when he's saying goodbye to the student. And one of his parting words, along with many other things, is, do not seek to follow in the footsteps of the wise. Seek what they sought, as Kukai said. 
So it turns out that this one quote that's been attributed to Basho forever now, and people just, just run with it, was actually him quoting someone else, and even further, according to this expert, paraphrasing someone else. Now, Kukai is someone who uh, lived in Japan uh, much earlier in history than Basho. Basho, I believe, was alive in about the 17th century. Kukai was alive in maybe the, I think maybe 7th or 8th century, something like that, if I'm remembering correctly. And he, in Japan, is the founder of the Shingon tradition, which is one of the few Vajrayana traditions to exist in the Far East. And so he was a monk, but also a calligrapher and a painter and a poet. And he had this to say about painting and calligraphy. In writing poetry, a study of the old forms is an excellent thing, but it is no mark of ability to copy old poems. In calligraphy, too, it is good to imitate the old conceptions, but it is no mark of skill to make one's writing resemble the old examples. And so it's believed that Basho was paraphrasing this passage from Kukai. And both were Buddhists, uh, both were, were meditators. And so it isn't that much of a stretch to think that there's also some uh, allusions to the, the meditative and spiritual and Buddhist path in these passages. In fact, I think that poetry and calligraphy are great analogies for the Buddhist path. Mastery of each, both painting and calligraphy, or any, any of the arts, any crafts, any skilled work, uh, is evident when one has internalized the lessons of one's teachers and made them one's own. So, no longer imitating, but finding one's own style. In Buddhism, mastery might be understood as self-mastery. And the tools of our art form are the Noble Eightfold Path and our own bodies and our minds. So, Self-mastery in this context is cultivated through intimate understanding of ourselves. And I talked about this, I believe, uh, last month when I was talking about what insight might be in meditation. That what we're always getting at, at least in, in my experience and from what I've learned from other people, is this intimate knowledge, intimate understanding of our own lives. And through that, our subjective experiences coming to... Uh, ultimate reality, you know, universal truth. So when we put the Buddhist path into practice, we, we make it our own. That, that's the way I'm thinking about it in the context. In the same way, someone who, who writes poetry learns a certain style, right? They, they learn, in the case of haikus, that it has to have certain syllables in this line, certain syllables in this one, and it has to be, you know, uh, said in a certain way, certain cadence. And then they, they take these tools, the, the clean sheet of paper, the brush, the, the ink stone, and, and everything. And they, and they, from this, create something entirely unique and beautiful. At first, they probably don't. At first, they're probably copying someone else. This is the same thing when a lot of us start learning Buddhism. We find out that there's this path, that there are, there are people who've walked it, that they've done certain things. And so we seek to do the things they're doing. 
we, we find out that they go to temples. We start going to temples, right? We, we find out they go to zendos or meditation centers. We go to those places. We find out someone meditates a certain way, and then we start meditating that certain way. And at first, it really is just imitation. Someone says, sit like this, put your hands like this, and you do. Someone says, close your eyes or keep them open, and you do. Someone says, breathe a certain way, and you do. To understand that you're breathing in a certain way, and you do. And for a while, you might just, just do that and, and not know the reason why. Or see the, the beauty and mystery of it and go deeper. But given enough time, you will. You will look deeper and try to find your own reasons why these things are done. Someone can tell you why, but one of the things that I've been finding out about the Buddhist path as I've been walking it is that we have to come to our, our own understanding. No one else's will do. Someone can give you their understanding, their explanation, their words, but it will never resonate as deeply as your own experience will when you delve into meditation or when you follow any aspect of the path. Right speech. We might imitate the right speech of another. We hear that they don't use certain words. We might decide that we're not going to use certain words. We find out that, that they speak very quietly or don't talk at all. We might do the same. But over time, we, we find not restriction in these kind of things, but a kind of, of freedom because we find our own way to be skillful in our speech. When I was first becoming serious with following the Eightfold Path in my early 20s, I was afraid that if I, if I said a bad word, that like, oh, I've, I've committed some kind of sin, I've failed as a Buddhist, and I might as well just put everything away, burn my, my Zafu and everything, just forget it, right? Uh, you know, truthfully, uh, there's probably a difference between being on the freeway and saying, damn, and uh, calling someone a, 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 you know, a bad slur to their face. Very different things. In the moment, it's probably pretty human to be like, ah, damn, on the freeway, and don't beat yourself up about it. And that could still be skillful speech, especially if you can just say it and then move on with your day. What becomes very unskillful is that when you go through that little encounter on the freeway when someone cuts you off, and then you decide to go and talk about it all day to someone else, you won't believe what so-and-so, like, you won't believe what this person did on the freeway, this and this, and it just becomes this, this big negative thing. In that case, you're not using any negative language, right? in the terms of like bad words or any kind of slurs, but you're being unskillful in that you're, you're bringing all this neg negativity to the forefront. And, uh, and the, the Buddha even talked about this. I, I don't remember um, where it is because I, I just found it recently, but there, he's talking to a Brahmin and the Brahmin says, well, you know, I, I don't see a problem in having such and such experience and then talking about it seeing a certain thing and then talking about it, hearing a certain thing and then talking about it. And he goes through all the senses. And, uh, and the Buddha says, well, I don't, I don't teach not to say those things. Uh, what I teach is that if you have a certain experience, you see, you hear, you taste, whatever, something, and you say it, and it brings about or fosters unwholesome qualities, then you shouldn't say it. But if you see, hear, ex experience anything, and you say it, and it fosters wholesome qualities, then by all means, say it. And so that's, that actually gives us a, a lot of room. It sounds restrictive at first, like I gotta speak a certain way, 
But really, that is an invitation to investigate for ourselves because it has to be something internalized. It has to be our own subjective experience. What do we find to be unwholesome? What causes agitation in our own minds? And when we're interacting with others, how do we see them reacting to the words we say? I found this out to be the case of, of uh, something fruitful to do because for me, I thought I was being really positive because I was making light of certain situations, but I was doing it in a sort of self-deprecating way sometimes, or uh, even though it was humorous, it was kind of a, like a dark or like a blue sort of humor. And I was inadvertently, say, maybe making my wife uncomfortable or some of my friends uncomfortable because even though I was joking, it had a, a negative feeling to it for them. And so even though I thought I was finding a wholesome way of, of using, you know, my speech because I was helping myself feel better about my negative emotions by making jokes, I was still making other people uncomfortable. And when I realized that, when I saw that, I had a choice to make. Does it really cost me anything to find uh, another way? Does it really cost me anything to maybe not make the joke? Maybe it makes them feel better. And so that becomes something skillful, not because, you know, doing it or not doing it was causing or ending any agitation in myself, but because it was doing so for others. And that's not something that can be learned in a book. That's not something that can be really taught. It's something that you have to experience because you are living your own lives. You have your own friends and family. You have your own conditions that have brought you into this world. And so it's the same idea. You have to look at the relationships you are fostering in your life and see the ways that create harmony, wholesome qualities in yourself and others. So it can seem as though the path is, is already mapped out for us, a static thing. All we have to do is imitate the thoughts and actions of those that have walked the path before us. But the path is alive and dynamic right in this very moment, right here and right now. For, for those of us who have taken those steps to follow the Buddhist path, for those of us who are following the Eightfold Path and, and meditating and, and doing these things, we're living in it right in this moment. The thoughts in our minds right now are dictating our future thoughts and our future experiences right in this moment. That's not something static. And by that I mean it's not something that's just a, a lofty idea in a book. It's not something that we just pick up on, on the weekends. That the Eightfold Path itself is about our lives and our understanding and our wisdom that we're trying to cultivate. So to bring it back to this concept of, of poetry, the same thing. You can copy someone else's poems all day. That doesn't make you a poet. And it certainly doesn't make you a master of poetry. You can learn all the sonnets of Shakespeare and copy them down every day. That doesn't make you Shakespeare. But if you learn the meter and rhyme and everything that goes into those kind of sonnets and start creating some of your own, 
you might find your own kind of mastery given enough time. You won't be Shakespeare because you're you. You have your own causes, you have your own conditions, you have your own mind, the things that you are doing. But you might find your own greatness, your own mastery within the context of your own life. Make your own sonnets. Same thing with the Buddhist path. We're not trying to, to run after the Buddha's enlightenment, his liberation. We're trying to find our own in this, you know, in this world where we are right now. He found his. So we could do all the same things he did. You know, it would require flying to you know, the subcontinent of India, maybe hanging out in Nepal. We could sit under the same tree, meditate for the same number of days. But that in itself, those external actions don't lead to anything because it's about the, the inner journey. It's about that self-mastery of turning within and understanding yourself very intimately. When we look at every aspect of the Eightfold Path, we see the same thing, that our skillfulness, this perfection we're after, always comes down to our understanding, our thoughts, our words, our actions, our livelihood, and then how we foster understanding and wisdom with our effort, our mindfulness, our concentration. So even though we have this, this path given to us, these tools, they're meant to be used by us as individuals to understand ourselves. What we then have is a very unique and indiv individual expression of universal truths of the Dhamma within ourselves. Because the Dhamma means not only the teachings of the Buddha, but also the way things are, reality itself. Uh, I believe Venerable Tanisaro Bhikkhu talks about Dhamma as, as three different things. We can think about it as the Dhamma to be studied, what we find in the suttas, what we find in the entire Tipitaka, all of it, and then the Dhamma to be practiced, how we apply it to our lives, and the Dhamma to be realized, what we find after we've done these two things. So even though he talks about it as, as three things, I, I'm, I really think about it as two different categories, of course interconnected, where the Dhamma to be studied and the Dhamma to be practiced, that's really one thing. Those are the, the teachings of the Buddha. When we learn from, from him and other teachers within the tradition, about the Eightfold Path. The Dhamma to be realized, that's the Dhamma that is the way things are, the reality that we experience in every moment, here and now. So to bring this back full circle, simply copying what others have done blindly won't lead to mastery. Not in the arts of any kind, crafts, disciplines of any kind, and certainly not on the Buddha's path. We have to take the tools and the lessons we have been given and make them our own. I've found this to be the case, especially in meditation. When I was starting out, you know, you, 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 you go look, like, how does one meditate? You know, type that into Google and forget it. But even back then, you know, in the late 90s, uh, I, back then, I don't think I really had access to the internet, and I was very young. So 
I only had what I could find in, in bookstores. And my parents were pretty cool about my spiritual exploits and, and kind of running off and doing things. But uh, I wasn't just going to go off and, and go to a temple or a meditation center because they weren't going to take me. And it's kind of weird when a kid shows up by himself. People ask questions. So I had books. That's what I had. And so I'd go to places like Borders when that still existed. Uh, all I think Walden's, all these other bookstores used to exist. I can't remember all, all of them anymore. But I would go to these places and I would just look for books and books and books on everything. And And you find that everyone has their own interpretation of what meditation is, you know, globally in multiple traditions. But then even within the context of not only multiple branches of Buddhism, but even within the same school, you find multiple interpretations. And sometimes they seem to be conflicting. And as a young person, and I'm still young now, but a younger person, I was very confused by all this. And and so I, I would look at quotes like this, like, you know, don't follow in the footsteps of others. You do your own thing. Seek it out. So I would just find what worked for me and, and sort of cobble it together. And it worked to a point. But now, after my experience in academia, my experience in philosophy, really having gone much deeper into Vipassana than I, than I did when I was younger... I see now not all the differences, but many of the similarities. Because one thing I discovered in philosophy, academically, Western philosophy, is that the way we use words really matters. And people use words in, in very uh, specialized ways a lot of the time. And they have their own jargon. They have their own glossary of terms. They have their own definitions. And you see people sometimes that are simply talking past each other. You find teachers of meditation that you think are disagreeing on a topic, and they might even think that they're disagreeing on a topic. But when you understand the way they think about the words they're using, you find many similarities. I struggled with, with this in trying to learn the proper way of doing breath meditation, anapanasati, right? Because you read one book, or you hear one teacher, and he or she says, do it like this. Simple things, like when you breathe in long, know and think you breathe in long. And another teacher says, it's preconceptual, don't think anything, just breathe. Well, which one is it? You know, and you struggle with that. You know, as you breathe in, ah, the whole body. And someone else, no, it's not the whole body, it's the whole breath body. You should only focus right here at the tip of your nose. And then that's confusing too, like, which one is it? And I would struggle and struggle and struggle trying to figure out what all these guys were talking about. But then I had to get to a point where I had to just stop and just stop focusing on, on the inconsistencies and just do the breath meditation. And what I found is that these distinctions often didn't matter, that it was just some kind of starting point and would often take you to the similar, if not the same, experience. Some say, start at the tip of the nose and then, follow, you know, then be with the breath body. Well, when you really start following the breath body, you realize that it's just the body. Like, it's the whole body breathing. Even biologically, even on the cellular level, every single cell in your body is breathing. If you follow the breath, you will eventually get to awareness of the entire body, right? That's what I do now when I f am focusing on, the, on the, the whole body. For me, it is both the breath body and the whole body because I no longer see a distinction. 
Same thing with breathing in, like, uh, no, you breathe in long, no, you breathe you know, in short. Same idea. Preconceptual just means we don't add words to it, but we can still know it without the words. Some people say, say it in your head. Maybe they say that, but they don't mean it that way. Because then you really would be distracted, like, breathing in, breathing out, breathing in. And maybe at first you do that, I did. But over time, you realize that the words fall away and the awareness stays. You stay with that. And then it becomes something not that someone taught you, not something that you're copying, mimicking, or, or in, in any way imitating, but it becomes your own, something that you're doing with your own understanding, still within the context of the path, still within the context of the various schools you're following. Right? That kind of freedom and mastery say in poetry, doesn't mean that all of a sudden you get a block of ice and start sculpting into something and like, look, my poem. No, you're still using the same tools, but you're finding your own expression in them. You're still taking up the paintbrush, the paint or ink, and you're still writing out the words. And of course, I'm using this analogy because we're talking about, you know, Japanese poetry that would be done with uh, the characters. In English, we'd have our pen or pencil, our paper, at this point, laptop, computer, same idea. These are tools. With Buddhism and following the path, we can follow the path without following someone else's footsteps because the path is intimately interwoven into our own personal experience in this moment of this life. I think that's it. I want to say that I sincerely wish that all of you be well, happy, and peaceful. Thank you for listening.